Hi, this is Dave Pryor from Leading Agile Sound Notes. First, I'd like to thank you for listening to these interviews. I really enjoy getting to do them, and I hope they offer valuable information that helps you, your teams, and your organization amp up your ability to deliver on the outcomes you're looking for. Second, I'd like to ask for your help. We're trying to find ways to reach more people with the podcast, and one of the primary ways that we do that is through iTunes. To increase our ranking and get seen by more people, we need one thing, reviews. So if you'd be willing to take a moment and leave us a review on iTunes, that's going to go a long way towards helping us increase the visibility for this podcast and get it seen by more people so we can help more folks. I'll have a link posted to the iTunes page in the show notes for this podcast, and if you can spare a few minutes, we would be really grateful for your help. And if iTunes isn't your thing, we still want your feedback. So you can always just send an email to dave.prior at leadingagile.com. Anything you have to say, good or bad, would be very valuable to us. Or if you've got a question you'd like us to address in an upcoming podcast, just send that as well. Again, dave.prior at leadingagile.com. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Dave Pryor, welcome to Leading Agile's Sound Notes. Doug Spencer's here. Doug, thank you for taking time out of your, your day today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, we're going to talk about some investment-related transformational stuff in a minute, but before we do that, Doug, can you introduce yourself to the listeners of this podcast? This is the first time you've been on, right? Yeah, first time. First time. Right, so Welcome. Yeah, thank you. And uh, my background, uh, they're relatively new to leading Agile. I've been working in the transformation field for a number of years, uh, primarily coming out of the uh, the less camp uh, and working on some large scale uh, transformations with uh, uh, some of the groups associated with Boss Vada and, and those guys. Uh, I'm also a, uh, I'll, I guess I'll call myself a recovering CIO and CTO. I've, I've run various product uh companies over the years, uh, the technology and product teams, as well as uh, been doing a, a little bit of interim CIO work uh, over the last uh, four or five years as well. Okay, cool. And, and so t- before we get into this stuff, just for the folks that may not be familiar with less, everybody talks about scaling, everybody talks about safe. How would you quickly explain less and the work that Boss and Craig are doing? Um, I, I think it's, it's of all the frameworks that are out there, it really moves you. And if I, I look at the, the leading agile model more toward, uh, the base camp four or five realm, it's, it really moves you toward that lean startup, uh, side. It's, it's the, I think the framework that is the closest and the truest to pure scrum. Yeah. Uh, and they, they kept that philosophy, uh, with it since the beginning. Cool. Yeah, I, I I always describe it as it's a more it's more closer to Scrum and a lot more elegant than some of the other ones yeah. that are out there. Um, yeah, exactly. All right. And if people want to find out about that, they can go to less.works. But now let's get into the topic. So yes. um, we're gonna talk about investment tier and how that affects transformation. And this is for people that like me that uh, are somewhat challenged when it comes to financial topics. How would you briefly summarize the stuff that we were talking about before we started recording? Well, I think just in summary, I mean, and it's to me a really interesting topic having been on a number of exec teams and helped buy and sell a lot of companies over the years, right? Uh, Is you, with a large enterprise, you've got a large, you know, a portfolio of, of, products, initiatives, uh, service businesses, whatever they may be, depending on your enterprise. 
And, you know, as an exec team, as a board of directors and as shareholders, even, you need to understand that, you know, these things are making a ideally positive return on, the, on investment and that they're being managed appropriately. And what I found interesting over the year, there's been various and sundry, you know, scaling, agile scaling frameworks that have come to the market. I mean, there's, there's bunches of them now. You've got, you know, DAD, the Scrum at Scale stuff, Nexus, Less, Safe, you name it. And they all do a different job and a, kind of have a different take on what I kind of call the, the system, or as leading agile calls, the system of delivery and right. looking at how product is actually developed and product is made and getting those teams dialed in. But I don't think any of them does a very credible job of actually translating that back to something that a CFO or a board can look at and say, huh, is this actually working? Right, and how do I, how do I understand in, in that that this transformation effort is actually generating a positive return on investment and taking my business where I want it to go? Can I check in with you on this real quick? Yeah, yeah. I just want to make sure that it's that it's super clear for the folks that are listening. So, um, you start a natural transformation, and everybody wants to know how's the transformation going, and somebody's going to be like, "Oh, well, we got five teams that are doing Scrum or Kanban or whatever." And well, that's awesome. But that doesn't really speak to change across the organization. It right. speaks to localized change at a team level. And the bigger thing is, it doesn't say anything about what this stuff is doing for your business. No, exactly. Exactly. I mean, have you realized any cost savings? Are you actually delivering saleable product faster? Are you actually generating and, and, and achieving sort of the promise of, uh, you know, some of the agile promises, are you actually generating a return on that investment sooner and realizing business value sooner? How are you measuring all of that? And how are you quantifying that so that you can get that, that data back to, you know, stakeholders within the rest of your company and the, and the wider world if you're a publicly traded company? So I have a, a sort of, I don't know, maybe this is an obscure question. It just popped into my head. So, I mean, I wanted, I'd like to talk through different ways that you mentioned all this stuff, but the one that I kind of want to start out with is um, you start to do this kind of work. And one of the first things you learn in the pilot phase is what, what happens in your organization when you try to implement Agile in some corner of it. Like it's going to have a ripple effect to, to, that impacts every part of the organization. Right. And all throughout the transformation effort, Every new thing you try is put in place to help you learn. It has an impact that you learn. Now, how would you take that learning? How would you explain to some C-level person the impact of that learning? Or is, is there a way to quantify that in terms of how does this affect the business? I, I think so. I mean, one of the things we do, I mean, with, with sort of the system of transformation and the, and, and the base kit model and the, the metrics around that, right, is is as you get a team to where they become predictable and then they, they start delivering, uh, you can define some of those measures up front and then you can start tying that back to uh, upstream, not just at the team level, but to a higher level portfolio level or program level, depending on how, you, how, how big you are, and all the way up to an investment level. So if you define your system of measurement and what's important to the to the business from a from a goal and measure standpoint early, 
then I can start tying actual measures to the early parts of the transformation and have those roll up. And then as you're early on, and like you said, you're like with a pilot, right? So you've yeah. got an initial pilot and it's the first part of an organization that's transforming, which means it's going to be the odd man out because it's going to start operating in a new way and everyone else is, start, is, is still working in the old way, right? So there's a, there's a natural friction there. And that's, you know, when you, when you look at that and if you can isolate that, that pilot so that it is more or less a, a, a standalone type activity, for the most part, with well-defined interfaces, then you can actually quantify that and then start comparing its performance both at a, at a delivery standpoint, but also tie back to a financial standpoint based on, on how they're delivering and whatever, you know, what sort of cost savings they got. And you can start running some actual, you know, comparisons when you look at it at a portfolio level within your organization, within the enterprise. So I, I come in, I'm a scrum master, I get my team, you know, you mentioned predictability. So my team gets stable velocity. So I have an understanding of an average velocity. Maybe I'm able to track uh, bugs that are escaping. So I start to get some quality metrics going, right. um, tracking fluctuation in the backlog and within the sprint. Um, is any of that going to be able to be fed upstairs in a valuable way? Uh, the outcomes from those, yeah, because if your if your quality's improving and if your you know means of delivery is becoming more predictable, right? Some of that, you know, let, let's look at the predictability just as one right now. Okay, is if I'm like a cheap product offer, officer, right? You know, one of the things that will drive you the craziest is you're building your launch plans, you're building your marketing plans, you get all these streams of activities at a, if you're a product company, all focused on getting product delivered at a certain date, right? It's not right. just about the, the building the product. You've got marketing, sales prep, education. Support, everything, yeah. Everything coming together, right? All at this one point. And you have no confidence that your product team's going to hit it because their variability, their, their lack of predictability, no one really knows right? okay. sometimes, or they can't even deliver. So what, when you can start getting those guys on the product side and, and, and it's, and it's an upstream, it's not just the product team, it's how you're feeding them with, with the uh, backlog items and with work. Okay. And breaking this down. So it, it actually flows well outside the actual development teams in, in this whole system systematic approach. Yeah. So once you can start getting those teams and those development teams delivering, you know, good quality of product at a relatively predictable pace, then I as a product guy can start actually making sales forecasts that are meaningful and actually start counting on, you know, hey, if, if you know, assuming we're building the right thing, right? That we're actually going to start generating some revenue and, and seeing some uptake on, on our efforts, you know, cause I've, I've seen cases where product teams, you get close to the end there and all of a sudden here's the big surprises. Oh yeah. We need three more months. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And things like that. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, if you're, a, you know, if you're a large company, you know, say you're a salesforce.com or somebody like that, yeah, you'll be upset, but you get the resources to weather that storm. If you're a mid-sized to smaller yeah, if you're a bunch uh, of people in a garage, you're screwed. 
Yeah, or even if you're a 50 or $60 million software company, right? Yeah. I mean, your dev team's not going to be that huge. If you're missing a, a delivery date by even a month, more or less a quarter or more, man, that that can be temporary death. I mean, that can that can make that can make you all of a sudden, you know, start to to peel back and maybe even lay people off depending on what your how much cash you got in the bank, right? Yeah. So let me try to I want to try to connect the dots here. So if we talk about predictability, um, that speaks to risk, like risk in yeah. the schedule, right? And that can be translated into dollars. And you can even use traditional Absolutely. waterfall methods to look at risk. Yep. But when it gets back to the investment level, let's say that I have predictability. Is it, and I'm checking in on this because I'm not sure I have it straight in my head or not, but I'm assuming that, assuming is the wrong word to use here, at the C level, they're making assumptions. They've made assumptions about, okay, we have this predictable team here, so if we apply a little more gas, we should see an increase in pace or flow, and that will result in X number of dollars increase of whatever, whatever, whatever. Right. So they're, they're forming assumptions on how they can invest their money Mm -hmm. to try to see what impact that has, you know, what if it has a desired impact to the product or the system or whatever thing is going on. Is that, they're placing yeah. bets, basically. Yeah, it, it, they're placing bets. And if they actually have a system of delivery, right, in, in a, a well-old machine that can actually deliver what they say they're going to deliver when they say they're going to deliver it, and you have confidence in that at that, at that C-level, your investment strategy can and I've seen this happen, it, it, maybe it changes a little bit because before when you're making investments, right, and you're, you're going to place your bet, if you're not confident in, in, your, in your engine's ability to deliver, right? Right, yeah. Maybe you're not going to make some of the bets the same way or at all because you know you might be throwing money down a rat hole, okay? But if I've got confidence that I've got this well-old machine that if I feed it, you know, uh, you know, uh, an appropriate set of backlog items, an appropriate, uh, well-defined uh, description of what it is I need. And on the other end of it, it's going to come out and it's going to be a good quality that I can go sell. And I can do that time and time again and turn that crank. Then I'm not as constrained on my investment decisions. I can actually get a little more creative. I can actually take more investment risk because I know I've got a solid, organization and a solid delivery system behind me, right? Okay. And if I can measure that and I can have that flow up and have that efficient system, it can mean it, it actually increases the value of what I can deliver back to my shareholders. Okay. So I have another question now. I'm thinking through this stuff while you're talking about it, and I'm not sure I have it sorted in my head. In one direction, what I'm about to say makes total sense to me, and in the other, it makes no sense at all. You're talking about investment, so I'm thinking like it's flow, like it's water coming out of a tap. I'm putting a certain amount of money into this product, and I'm wondering if you can if you can get to a point where you can define like, I don't know what the term would be, but almost like whip. Like I have to keep a certain amount of currency flowing into this system for this product to keep producing and growing the way I want it to. At a certain point, it's too much, and at a certain point, it's too little. Yeah. Um, and from an executive standpoint, I can see that. But from the other end of it, the money's coming in. If I'm the product owner or whoever's in charge of the portfolio or the product, like, what, what is that? Like, how do, what do I do with the money? How do I decide where to put it? Yeah, well, that's, that kind of gets into the classic 
product and product management discussions you have of trimming the tail, right? Okay. With the new product, you're going to do a lot of innovation and, and in this early and mid, mid-life, you're going to be adding a lot of functionality. You're going to be building out the market, putting up barriers to competition, growing things either functionally, geographically, whatever it is, right? But at some point, you at an investment level and something, you know, and a, maybe a product owner or you know, a product manager who's tied to this one product sometimes may or may not see this because they're in love with their product, but mature ones do. But at the, at the investment tier of an organization, I'm going to look at that and say, you know what, we've had a pretty good run here, but for the amount of money I'm going to keep pumping into this thing, my ROI is lower than some of this new stuff or some of this different stuff. So I'm going to start redirecting some of this resource okay and i'm going to start trimming the tail and not not adding as much to this product anymore because my incremental you know it's just the natural life of any any product or any initiative you know my my incremental payback's not as great as it was six months ago 18 months ago right which is hard i mean you said i i might love my product and i i'm thinking yeah you should love your product but at the same time you should be ready to kill it at any moment <laughs> I mean, like, yeah no exactly you should love it enough to kill it i think you should love Maybe. it enough to kill it exactly <laughs> okay. although you see some products that'll be around long after we're gone <laughs> Well, that's, I think people, well, okay, so maybe we can talk about that from an investment standpoint. Let's say it's some company's got this marquee product. It's been their thing for forever. Um, it's, there's a, an emotional connection between the product and the company. I mean, how do you quantify something like that? Can you? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's, there are those cases where you get those franchises in like Microsoft Office. I'd, I'd yeah. argue it's one of those. I mean, Office will be around forever. Um, people will be using Word till well after we're gone. Yeah. Uh, most likely, um, barring some catastrophe. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, some, some things like that that are just so ubiquitous when, when it becomes almost like a platform or, you know, Xerox is the great thing. I mean, people make copies and you call it a Xerox, right? Or Kleenex, yeah. right. But okay, so if that happens, you don't even need to invest anymore. It's part yeah, of language comes, now. Well, you, you invest in the brand, okay? You invest in the brand recognition and, and things of that nature, which, which, you know, get away maybe a little bit from the, the technological piece, but you do have to do sort of the care and, care and feeding and maintenance of it, but they become a, they become a brand in and of itself. So, so I'm, I'm in the C-level at an organization, and we, we're going to have a budgeting meeting. We've got to decide how to spend the money. Uh, we've got some Agile stuff in play. I'm not so much in the you know, Agile for the sake of Agile camp. I understand Agile is tools. It's a way of executing that should help us gain a lot of different things that will help us make smarter choices. Um, I'm trying to decide how to invest the money across a number of products. I'm curious about who, you know, at the sea level, like who's in the room for this conversation and what kind of things are they talking about? What kind of questions are they asking? And and after that, I want to get into like how that um, is impacted by, by the introduction of Agile. But um, first, I'm just curious about what are they worried about? Uh, I think they're, I think they're worried about risk. Uh, they're worried about, you know, are, are we, are, how do we know we're even building the right thing? Right. And can we make money on it? Uh, are we going to have a, a return on the investment we make? Are we confident that we know how much to invest or, or, or how much we're going to invest? Can we sure. actually quantify that? 
you know, from, from most of the CFOs I've worked with, that's, that's most of those guys is that's their biggest thing is, Hey, product people, I don't believe that when you say it's going to, you know, this is a $2 million effort, you know, I want to, I want to like double it. Yeah. Um, because you're always late and, and, and everything. It's else. always more. Right. Yeah. And then the same thing on the sales side is, you know, on the, on the, you know, from the sales and, and revenue and market perspective, you know, are we, you know, who else is out there, you know, maybe thinking about this? Are we doing something new that's groundbreaking? Is the public going to take it? Uh, are, uh, can we sell it? Who would we sell it to and how? I mean, there's okay. all these all these questions that you that you that you have to think of when you're you know building some capability, uh, and it gets it gets rather complex. It's not a it's not an easy easy question. That's why when you say you know who's in the room, yeah, you know at various times. I mean, it's it, like if different people, different companies. companies. And even if you're developing something internally, you still have to worry about a lot of these questions because it does affect your ability to, to sell your end product and, and deliver your service to your end users, whether you're a, an insurance company or a bank or uh, somebody selling a product, right? You know? Okay. Yeah. So it, this yeah. is going to be the case, though, whether it's Agile or Waterfall. Yeah. You're still going to have... So, so how is Agile going to inform the decision-making? Well, I think an Agile approach... And that's where that, that, that's what's really cool about this. And I, I, I kind of in the years I started doing turnarounds, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, kind of accidentally fell into into working in sort of an iterative fashion because there's so many unknowns that you have to constantly come back and challenge your assumptions. Okay. And when you're working in an old school waterfall way where I'm trying to, I'm being told I need your revenue plan or I need your spend plan for the next two years. And I got to hold you to that. That's fiction. I don't know what's going to happen in three months, more or less two years, because, you know, some, some competitor could introduce something to the market that totally changes your world. Yeah. Okay. And, and blows away all your assumptions. And so, Working in an agile framework where you have a robust system of measures, both at a at a team level and you're monitoring how your your engine's working, right? Is you know, do you have oil in the engine? You know, are they at the right velocity? Are they meeting their quality metrics, et cetera? And having that flow all the way up and tied in with some of your product metrics is, you know, are you looking at looking at where the the the, the product is going from a from a sales and uptake standpoint, and you know whether it's clicks for revenue, or am I am I helping my agents' response times uh, go down to my to my customers? If I'm a, a call center booking vacations, for example. Uh, am I able to present the, the top three or four most profitable vacation packages as, instead of just ad hoc? If I can start tracking that and tying that into my delivery and then iterating on that, uh, you know, on a, at least a quarterly basis so that I can understand, you know, what's changed? Do we need to make a, a, a mid-course adjustment? Then as a business and as an executive team and as a board, I'm actually, I actually feel like I'm steering the car as opposed to, you know, sitting in Vegas and rolling the dice and hoping it comes up 11 or something. Okay. So you're going to have metrics that you're looking at in terms of 
transformation, in terms of execution at the team level, in terms of quality, um, probably in terms of throughput, things like that. And all these are kind of pointers, but none of them really answer the question of, did we spend this money the best possible way? So you're going to have to have, and I'm assuming each organization is going to be a little bit different, but you're going to have to come up with some formula for helping you understand whether or not this $100 bet that we placed mm -hmm. on either product development or training for a team or fixing some legacy system to remove technical debt because we think it'll have a good impact. We have to have some way of understanding the end impact of that and then weighing it against all the other investments. Right. And that ties back to your strategy and goals business. And okay. that's, and, and, and they have to, you know, those, those systems have to meet in the middle. And, and I actually argue they actually, they're actually intertwined is actually one system. Yeah. Because those measures in how you manage your portfolio are going to inform and drive and provide guardrails for what I do at a sort of a, a program or major initiative level, which then further is going to drive and, and set guardrails and set direction for what I do at a team level in terms of how I'm measuring myself and managing myself as a team. Uh, okay. I've been in situations, for example, where uh, at one point, uh, it was less about growing the market. Our metrics for the product and team early on in this in in this one turnaround effort was all about delivery predictability and quality. We were not concerned early on about growing the market. We were in survival mode because we'd inherited a, a company and a product that was uh, was down. going to fail. Right? Okay. It was going to fail, and we were we were seriously at risk of losing a handful of our largest customers because nothing had been delivered, and what had been delivered, uh, what little had made it out, didn't work. Okay. okay, and so our metrics, and based on what our sort of you know investment tier decisions were, that drove how we operated and and what we emphasized as teams for, I'd say, a good nine months. Okay. And then after about three quarters of this, we were able to look up and say, okay, we've, we've gotten past this kind of crisis. Yeah. Let's look at, you know, now we're, now we're sort of in a, in a situation where we're ready to, we're ready to grow. We're ready to start putting the pedal down and address some new markets uh, and maybe even leapfrog a little bit of the, the competition in, uh, in some respects. And so we did that, right? But we started at an investment level and we were looking at, all right, you know, what are the metrics we have for the amount of money we want to invest? What's sort of our minimum hurdle rate on our ROI? Uh, how do we want to, to be perceived? Uh, you know, what kind of, we were looking at like net promoter scores and things of that nature and, and you know, back from, from customers and channel partners and the like. And that's, that, that sort of, investment tier and looking at how we wanted to measure that flow down as we took sort of the standard, I'll say kind of like the standard agile scrum development, you know, metrics of velocity, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It, it they, they, they met, right. They became complementary, and it was, it was how you were interpreting it and how you were kind of turning those dials. But the idea of actually having the system in place and having the dials to turn is something that a lot of folks, miss 
Okay. And, and it's, it's, I mean, that, that's one thing I think is so cool about this because a lot of folks who come out of the, the traditional kind of Tayloristic waterfall way, they, we've been doing it that way for, you know, a whole variety of reasons that have been written about ad infinitum, but moving to a, an agile and iterative framework gives you actually so much more control than you used to have what you had was an illusion and it, it's you know sometimes it's a little, some people think it's people a little like scary. the illusion man what's that people they like, like the illusion, illusion. I, they <laughs> like the illusion yeah no i totally get it and, and it's a little scarier on, on this side of the world but this is where reality lives this is this is where things you wake up one day and you you find out that your competitors you know uh, released your product or, or as with a friend's business a long time ago, you wake up one day and you find out that, oh, gee, Microsoft just included that function in Office, <laughs> you know, things Oops. like that. Yeah. 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 And it's just like all of a sudden you got to scramble. Well, so I'm when you're talking through this, there's a part of me that's imagining that at the, and this, I need to check in with you as somebody who works more at this level than I obviously do, but at the sea level, I'm expecting that they're going to be like, oh, well, we got to invest this way. And, and rather than there being some defined metric as to how we'll decide whether or not this works, it's like, my gut said, whatever. Um, do they yeah. actually define, There's, like if I say we're going to invest this much money in this thing, how we know if it succeeds? Do they actually have that measure of success conversation while they're talking it, about the investment? It, it depends on the maturity of the organization. I mean- okay. The larger the enterprise, yeah, you're going to have, you're going to be locked down. I mean, to some extent, you're going to have to have, you know, some, some way to measure and articulate in some form or fashion that, you know, an auditor can come in and, and look at this, that you can explain it to shareholders and, and other stakeholders outside your business. Okay. Uh, you pretty much got to have that. I've worked in non-public companies, though, where it's kind of like you just said, you know, the, the CEO or, or the main business owner or whatever, a founder will go up and say, you know what? I mean, they're, and they're pulling the ultimate Steve Jobs mood. Yeah. Sometimes they're right. Okay. But they'll go, you know what? I just know it's going to work. We're going to yeah. do this. And it's just totally based on, on their market knowledge and their sort of gut feel. And that's what we're going to go do. And Sometimes that works spectacularly, and sometimes, sometimes it, it fails spectacularly. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes it doesn't. Okay. You know? and, and, and I would argue, though, that if you look, you know, because we only see the, the press with a lot of those, uh, I, would, I would argue that they probably fail a lot more than they don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. So how would, you, how would you summarize the message of this podcast? For, the, uh, for those at the sea level, what, what is it that we, we want them to know coming out of this? Well, I think to me and, and having, having worked with a lot of the folks at the sea level and, and, and such, what's exciting to me about an, uh, you know, moving to an agile operating model as a business is the insight and ability to actually control my business at a much finer level than I had before. Uh, I actually know more about where I'm going. Uh, and I know that I can change direction uh, very quickly if I need, if I need to do that. Yeah. Um, and it, it also, and I heard someone, uh, you know, kind of used a phrase, and I know I'm going to butcher it here, 
but it's also kind of gets away from sort of the, the the hero model of doing business, you know, and, 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 and kind of just all driven by one person is I'm generally engaging my entire company's workforce. Everybody in the company, regardless of the job they're doing is contributing to this direction, not only yeah. in a, turning the crank method, but intellectually. And the person, the comment that they made was like, you know, look, if, if I can get six or 10 people to do what I want them to do by their buy-in and they're suddenly contributing at that level, that's a lot more than I can get done by myself. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of really, or a lot of really good CEOs and executive teams uh, are learning that. And are making those are making those changes, and I'm I'm seeing it in numerous industries. It's uh, you know particularly prevalent in in uh, in banking, in automotive, uh, and uh, certainly in a lot of uh, a lot of product companies. So things are moving in a very positive direction. It just yeah. I always tell people, you know, it could take like a generation or two. I mean, this stuff is not across the board. It's moving slower than any of us wanted to, wanted to, but yeah. it is moving. It's a generational shift. That's that's for sure. That's for sure. Cool. Well, I appreciate you taking time for this. If um, if people want to reach out and get in touch with you with follow up questions, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, probably probably just uh, through Leading Agile at my email, Doug Spencer at leadingagile dot com. All right. I will make sure to include a link to that in the show notes. And dude, thank you very much for for your time this morning. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's fun. <laughs> 